This is Teachers Talk Radio, and you are listening live. Hello, dear fellow listeners. This is our afternoon twilight show with Maud. It is Sunday, the 6th of September, of November, my apologies, and you can join me using the chat function. We can discuss this topic, which is decolonizing Christmas. Welcome! This is Teachers Talk Radio, and you are listening live. Tune in live at ttradio.org or to join in the conversation, download the Podbean app and search Teach Talk Radio. Follow the hashtag TT Radio. Tune in, talk it out with Teachers Talk Radio. Good afternoon, fellow educators and dear listeners. This is my 21st radio show as a hostess, and I'm delighted to share this experience with you. But first, I have to introduce myself for any new listeners. I'm a French citizen of French and West African ancestry. I have lived in the UK since 2008, and I'm a professional educator. I work in a secondary state school in North London, where I do teach languages as well as humanities. I also have experience as a teacher in the charity sector. You can follow me on Twitter at ProfProfMFL. All views are my own. So today I would like to focus on one topic that is relevant to me as an educator and also personally in my daily working life. This podcast will be on the topic of decolonizing Christmas. This is mostly relevant to any educators in the English-speaking world. To anyone who is interested in promoting anti-racism strategies and diversity. Anyone who is interested in inclusive education. And for the curious and savvy. So again, you can follow me on live on Twitter with at ProfProfMFL and interact with the chat function on TT Radio. First, I have to start by explaining what I mean by decolonizing. Decolonizing is a term that was penned by a very famous um, Kenyan writer in the 1980s, so it's already a 40 years old term. But now, what we mean by this is decolonizing the curriculum means asking to look at everything around us and seeing the shared assumptions that we have about the world. Decolonizing means questioning the impact of colonization in history, in economy and finance, and also in cultural representations. Decolonizing means asking to think about the implications of a more diverse student body in terms of how we teach these students and what they can achieve. And also, decolonizing means making people from ethnic minorities more promoted as public and historical figures and more predominant in the media. 
What, I'm, what do I mean by decolonizing Christmas? Well, I want to focus on Christmas because this is something we use in our curriculum every year. Everybody's going to do a lesson that's Christmas themed, whether they're teaching maths or Spanish or any other topics. Because we live in a society in Europe where most people celebrate Christmas. So I wanted to ask, what is Christmas really about and how can we make it more inclusive? So what can a teacher do in 2022 when they want to address the global issue of racism in a state school? Well, the first step is to recognize that to fight against racism, we need to decolonize what we teach in our schools. I've been working on decolonizing for the last two years, and today is the time to think about Christmas. If you can hear some fireworks, remember it's the celebration of Guy Fawkes Night in the UK and my neighbours are having a bit of a blast. So first, we need to think about decolonizing society by starting in the classroom. We have to acknowledge the fact that we live in societies where racism is institutionalized. I'm not the only one saying it. It has been expertly analyzed in many reports many government reports, for instance. We need to be aware of the terminology we use. I use the government terminology B-A-M-E, BAM, or BAM, in the UK, which refers to black and Asian ethnic minorities. But I'm very much aware that it's a government um, acronym and it doesn't represent the wealth of education, culture, and richness that the black and Asian minorities bring to the country. I'm still using it because this is a general term that is used in administrative papers. But I, I also want to acknowledge that this can also be seen as controversial. I have noticed a lot of issues with whitewashing in UK media. Whenever there is a picture, sometimes black people who are represented in a picture are cropped out in the final edit before being published in media. Because I want to do something about it, I want to bring our gaze onto the topic of Christmas. I'm working in the context that is uh, very tensed since the Black Lives Matter protest in America since 2015. I would like to remind you that Black Lives Matter pro Black Lives Matter is a charity and an association created by three women named Alicia Garza, Patrice Cullors, and Opal Tometi. And these three women are Black African Americans activists who are trying to stop police committing murder in the Afro- and Hispanic communities in America. But they have also a different agenda, which is a globalized agenda where they want to promote black culture. I'm looking at decolonizing my school, decolonizing my teaching and decolonizing my mind, which is why today I wanted to talk about Christmas because as the Guy Fawkes celebration in the UK are finishing, we are turning our gaze towards the celebration of Christmas. And I'm very much aware that a lot of my students do not celebrate Christmas because they might not be Christian or because they are uh, from immigrant backgrounds where Christmas is not celebrated in their home countries. 
Some students might be Jewish, might be Hindu, might be Sikh, or might be Muslim, and they do not celebrate Christmas. So how can I make Christmas inclusive? How can I mention Christmas without putting or ostracizing any of my students? So I'm starting by decolonizing my classroom, but first I need to talk about what Christmas is about. So let's go back to the origins of Christmas. In the spirit of decolonizing my teaching, I turn my gaze to the celebration of Christmas in Western societies. It is very interesting to see that Christmas is not, according to its name, just about the Christian religion. Christmas has Celtic, Norse, and Latin, Roman Latin origins. At the beginning, Christmas was a festival of light, not unlike the Hindu festival of light, Diwali, which is celebrated in October in India and other countries where there is an Indian community. Christmas was originally an ancient pagan event, which took place during the winter solstice. This is when the nights are at their longest in the year. So you can imagine traveling back thousands of years, you could see Norsemen or Celts who would celebrate the longest nights of the year by bringing the biggest log they could cut in the woods and they would burn the logs in the fire pits inside their homes and party all night. This was later on added to the Roman Saturnalia and the Romans added to the celebration the banquet with a lot of food and offering of gifts in the honor of the god Saturn. And then finally, Christianity, when it developed and took over, superimposed itself on these pagan traditions by adding the concept of nativity, hence the name Christmas with the, the surname of Jesus Christ. It is important to remember when an empire conquers a land, the religious sites might be destroyed in the process, but they're not systematically erased from the geography of the conquered land. Sometimes the conqueror wants to use the religious sites that are already there. So in that same spirit, if there's already celebrations, such as the winter solstice, when the Romans conquered and then when slowly Christianity took over after the fall of the Roman Empire, the, the habitual celebrations were kept. Onto them, we added other meanings. So the Christians reflected on what could they add to the celebration of the winter solstice. So they decided to add the birth of Jesus Christ with the concept of nat nativity, because they thought that was the most appropriate event in Jesus Christ's life that matches the midwinter significance because the midwinter celebration were a celebration of the longest night but also of the beauty of light and the power of fire which comes from prehistoric times remember the first technology we invented as humans is conquering fire being able to use a flint to create our own spark and lit a fire was the beginning of cooking, for instance. So it is our first technological advance. Because the birth of a baby brings about the idea of the rebirth of nature, 
we added the nativity to the winter solstice. The winter solstice heralds the happening of the most difficult times in our Neolithic or later on Celtic lives, which is the spring months. Imagine that in January, February and March, before nature comes back and there's the rebirth of spring, these were terrible months where sometimes, and very often, food was lacking. So by having a big party in the winter solstice and celebrating by eating food, the food that we harvested in the summer, we could also celebrate our constant fight against nature and its elements. So, in Christmas, there's the word Christ, which makes it difficult when you teach very diverse groups and when some communities are reluctant to mention anything that is seen as religious. Now, it's important to teach these students that before Christmas, there was already midwinter solstice celebration. So Christmas is not just about a prophet from a monotheist religion or the son of God for the Christians. Christmas has older, deeper roots. Christmas is an accretion of religious practices. So what are the Christmas cliches? Well, these are the ones that we're all familiar with if we live in a Western society. First, there's this advent calendar where the children are encouraged to count the days before the 25th of December. Then, for people who can afford it, there's the fir tree, which is the pine tree that is cut and brought inside the house. To that, we can add the tradition of the Yule log, which stems from these Neolithic or even prehistoric people who selected the biggest log to burn in a fire while they were having the greatest night of partying ever. And then there's the tradition of decorating the tree, which is actually a quite a recent addition. And for the consumerist idea of the cl Christmas cliche, we can add Santa with his red and white costume. We can add wearing pyjamas, matching pyjamas for the whole family. And then if you think about decoration, we can have the consumerist accumulation of Christmas lights outside American houses and also the lit candles on the fir tree for more traditional ideas of Christmas. So these are all the Christmas cliches that we're very, very familiar with. Now, if I told you where these cliches originate, you would have to look at a world map and go on a little trip because most of these cliches stem from very different locations. Now, the idea of the Christmas tree, for instance, comes from continental European forests, where there are fir trees. So mostly Latvia and Germany and some areas of Austria and France. The idea of the Christmas wreath that we put on our front doors is actually way more foreign and distant geographically. You have to travel all the way to ancient Egypt and Israel to have the first um, apparition of Christmas, uh, not of Christmas, but of wreath as a decoration indoors for religious festivities. And then you have obviously 
the candles added to the tree, which comes from Germany. Also, the decorated trees, which is an idea that started from Latvia and Riga. And then you also can travel all over the world for seeing people celebrating Christmas, because Christmas is celebrated in Canada, America, but also Vietnam, France, Europe, some areas in the West Indies, and as far as Japan. So if you want to put your Christmas boots on to travel and see all the celebrations, you would have to travel around the world. Now, if we look back at the historical side of things, the first celebration of lights were from, as I said, prehistoric people who liked to lit a fire in the darkest and longest nights of the year. But then the idea of celebration, celebrating the sun stems from the Egyptians, for instance, who celebrated the god Ra, the sun god. The, the Egyptians believed that when winter came every year, it was because Ra was getting sick. And on the 21st or the 22nd of December, the winter solstice, the population used to celebrate Ra by filling their home with beautiful evergreen trees because evergreen trees don't shed their leaves. So they're seen as stronger and resistant to the seasons. Later on, Jewish people also made wreath for religious celebration way before the actual birth of Jesus Christ. Now, I mentioned the decorating of the tree. So this stems from obviously um, Germanic and all stripes who used to bring the biggest log to burn. And then later on, they also brought a tree. And it happens that uh, Protestants with Martin Luther got into the habit of lighting candles on a fir tree. Now, most countries have dropped the idea of live candles lit on a fir tree, but I have witnessed that it's can, in Scandinavia, people still um, take 10 or 15 minutes every evening on Christmas Eve to lit actual candles, despite the fire risks. Now, the Brotherhood of Blackheads is a group of foreign merchants who had their um, headquarters in Riga, now Tallinn, in Latvia. And they used to bring a tree and decorate it with sweets so that the youngest apprentices or the children of the Brotherhood people could get some treats for the holidays in their guild house. This tradition became so popular it spread through Northern Europe. And then it reached Eastern and Western Europe. Now, we have a representation of the oldest Christmas tree, and that one dates from 1576, so the 16th century. And it was on an engraving representing a private home during the celebration of Christmas. And it was in a house in Turkheim in Alsace, current France. Later on, people thought they could start making money out of the Christmas festivities. So you have to wait till the early 19th, 20th century. In 1908, Jared Lang, who happened to be a German uh, publisher, uh, 
started printing calendars. Um, his factory was called the Heischhold and Lang factory, and they sold different calendars. Some had a braille version for people who couldn't even look at the pictures. There was no chocolate in the original advent calendars. You could only open a little window and get a different picture behind, or a different image, usually religious ones. Now, later on, in 1931, Coca-Cola commissioned an illustrator who was called Haddon Sundblom, and he designed a new costume for Santa. The new costume had to have the colours of the Coca-Cola brand, which was red and white. And uh, Haddon Sundblom looked at the past for inspiration. He found a poem written in 1822 by Clement Clark Moore, entitled A Visit from St. Nicholas. It is commonly known as well as Twas the Night Before Christmas. And by looking at this um, poem by Clement Clark, Clark Moore, um, Hedden Sundblom had the idea of designing a um, costume for Santa. And Santa appeared as an older man, on the plus side, size-wise, who enjoyed a little bit of food. So you can see that the what we take as granted, what we take for granted in the celebration of Christmas are quite relative recent additions. The tree is from 1576. The advent calendar is from 1908, so just a little bit more than a hundred years. And the red and white costume for Santa is from 1931. So pretty recent. And now if you look at the pyjamas, the first flannel flannelette pyjamas sold in a catalogue in America dates from 1956. It's the Sears catalogue and the whole family was dressed in matching outfits with Christmas gifts patterns for the 25th of December celebration. So all in all, it's still very recent. So now I would like to have a think about it. The origins of Christmas are prehistoric people who wanted to celebrate all together huddled near the fire by maybe telling stories and burning the biggest log. Then later on, there was people, probably Celts or Norse, who started celebration of the, mid the midwinter solstice. Then later on, the Romans added a banquet and gift giving. And then Christianity came through it, added the story about the baby being born, and starting uh, later on with Protestantism, we added a fir tree because there were the local fir trees growing in the forest of Germany and Latvia. So you can see how everybody brings a new habit, and all this coalesces in a very, very specific celebration. But before we move on to why this happened, I think we need to see exactly in detail what were people doing at these times. Neolithic times. So when you picture Neolithic people, you need to think that they obviously had primitive lifestyles 
but they also had technology. Neolithic people were able to build mounds and tombs with extremely difficult designs. We still don't really know how they erected the stones for Stonehenge, for instance. We think they were using uh, logs and ropes in order to erect these super heavy, several tons heavy stones. But these people had access to their own religious beliefs and their own spirituality. They were so clever that when they designed tombs, they designed them so that the corridor leading inside the tomb could get sun rays, but only once a year, on the actual winter solstice. And because this would happen only once a year, the people who built these tombs believed it created a passageway leading to the beyond, or to the afterlife. If you're interested about these mounds or tombs, you can visit one in Ireland. It is called Newgrange, and it's a Stone Age passage tomb that you can visit. Remember, the sun rays only lit the passageway on the winter solstice once a year. It just shows an artistry and an understanding of how to build which is staggering. And also in pre-Celtic minds, thousands of years before Jesus Christ, the longest night of the 21st of December on the winter solstice was paradoxically the only time when one could enter in direct communication with the dead and with the realm of the spirits. So this is heavy. This is not just about, it's the longest night, let's have a big fire and have fun. It is also accessing the departed. Now, the Celts added their own spirituality to the solstice. According to the Celts, it was a great battle between the, the Oak King, who was the representative of light, and the Holly King, who represented darkness. And eventually, at the end of the long night, the Oak King would be victorious and daylight would come back to the land. And again, they would be engaged in battle, the Holly and Oak King, on the 21st of June. So there would be two big battles, one when the night was the longest, and one when the night was the shortest. Druids revered that plant that we still put in our houses over the Christmas period. It's the mistletoe plant, and it was considered magical because it was evergreen. It didn't shed its leaves. According to Druids, it signified the continuance of life over the cold, dark winter. It was also believed to have aphrodisiac properties, hence the association with a kiss. People still use it today. So the winter solstice might have looked like an occasion to make a great feast, butcher some animals, roast them over the fire, and enjoy the fruits of the harvest before the harshest winter months came. So remember, it was not rare to lose family members due in, in the spring months when malnutrition and hunger set in. So to light fires in the night on the winter solstice was a way to say that we were going to make it this year. 
Now, I did mention that the Romans came to Britain and also brought their spirituality and their ideas and superimposed them on the pagan celebration of the winter solstice. So when the Romans came, they brought the Saturnials in the name of the god Saturn, and it happened in early December. So instead of having two parties, they thought, let's just superimpose the Saturnials to the Celtic celebration of the, the solstice. So the idea of a banquet became popular, and early Europeans started ex exchanging gifts. <coughs> My apologies. Now, I did mention that in ancient Egypt, the Egyptians and also the Jews decorated their homes with wreaths for religious purposes such as weddings or for the Jews for the two-day spring festival of Shavuot. The wreaths promoted the harvest and the blessings of nature. So, you can see that in the idea of Christmas wreaths that we have nowadays, we might have forgotten, but this was a celebration of agriculture and the passing of seasons and the blessing of Mother Earth. And then we brought the idea of Christ into Christmas. Christianity spread to Europe from the first century onwards, and they decided that it would be the birth of Jesus that would be associated with the early pagan celebrations. As I mentioned earlier, the idea of the birth of a baby can be associated to the birth and the rebirth that we await in spring. So we would have the birth of nature and the birth of a baby. Using the Advent calendar, we also have the three kings with the epiphany, and all these dates punctuate the year in order to rearrange the lives of the Christians. Christmas lost its strong pagan flavors then and became a Christian celebration. But then later on, something else came out of the Christmas celebration, and it was the idea of a child festivity. We all know that Christmas doesn't feel really fun when there's no children in a family. So Christmas ha wouldn't have its soul without children. In the Victorian times, Christmas was not so popular. It was just a mass like any other masses. People would go to the church and then might have a dinner and that was it. The idea of the medieval big banquet with a lot of partying had lost its appeal. However, a new phenomenon was slowly developing in European societies. This was the invention of the concept of childhood. Before the Enlightenment in 18th century, children were seen as little versions of adults. They were not treated much differently to adults. Many children had to work. Many children were engaged in domestic roles and many girls were, were married very, very early on. It is with the philosopher's writings, such as Jean-Jacques Rousseau or John Locke, that the issue of childhood became new. Childhood became a special time when humans are not yet fully developed and have different needs. So in fashion, we started developing patterns that fit the body of children. In literature, we started writing books targeted at children. And in science as well, medical discoveries showed that children were different from adult bodies. 
And then we had the arrival of a storyteller. Because remember, a myth needs to be written. To create the myth of Christmas, we needed the best storyteller. And here came Charles Dickens, father of four, with his wife pregnant and a fifth child on the way. Charles Dickens decided to write a ghost story in 1843, and he called it A Christmas Carol. This is, to, to this day, his most popular tale. Dickens was deeply aware of the plight of poor Victorian children in cities. He had visited the ragged schools where charity workers were hoping to educate the next generation and feed them. Most children didn't have any food, and the only food they would get was at the ragged schools, which was why we still called lunch um, school dinners in the UK. Dickens elected to broadcast the plight of the poor and to celebrate the delights of family life in his writing. Thus, he wrote A Christmas Carol. And this became the utmost middle-class family celebration. It is said that Dickens, it may truly be said, is Christmas. And this was a quote from the literature scholar V. H. Alamandi in 1921. And now, because Charles Dickens' Christmas Carol became so popular, another powerful person decided to use it to its advantage. And this was the monarchy and the queen. Queen Victoria really enjoyed the celebrations. Her husband was German and she herself had German ancestry. So she was very aware of Germanic traditions of the fir tree and Protestant tradition of decorating the fir tree with lit candles. So she started broadcasting her family traditions. In 1848, the monarchy and the royal family were depicted on postcards around a Christmas tree. This became height, the height of fashion. I'm quoting from Queen Victoria's journal. She wrote it on the 24th of December, 1841. Christmas, I always look upon as a most dear happy time. Also for Albert, who enjoyed it naturally still more in his happy home, which mine certainly as a child was not. It is a pleasure to have this blessed festival associated with one's happiest days. The very smell of the Christmas trees of pleasant memories. So because Victoria and Albert's broadcast the ideal of the Christmas celebration in a Germanic way, the middle classes were eager to follow. And then the winter solstice took on a different turn. They became a celebration of the family, but also of the monarchy and the British Empire. So the monarchy broadcast Christmas celebration and Dickens made it fashionable again. But another empire started promoting Christmas and this was the American empire. Christmas got its Hollywood treatment. The American empire is mostly Christian with the WASP, WASP culture imported from Europe. It is strongly uh, embedded with expansionism and the appropriation of local indigenous cultures. Remember, Americans roast turkey for Christmas and Thanksgiving because it was the bird that the indigenous 
people used to eat and shared when the first immigrants came from Europe. The Americans decided to use Christmas as a triumphant symbol of consumerism. It started at the end of the Second World War. Christmas became a capitalist venture. It had already started with the Christmas calendar in 1908 in Germany, but the Americans took the concept and ran with it. Christmas is now the highlight of any shopkeepers as well as global corporations' yearly income. From movies on Netflix celebrating Christmas to the top hits of songs to pyjamas, dog blankets, biscuit tins, every product can be given a Christmas makeover. It is getting harder every year to discern the spiritual roots of the pagan winter celebration because Christmas has been covered in plastic and glitter since 1932. And yet, it is still a time when people gather in churches, but it might be the only time in the year when they gather in churches. So what is the raison d'être of the current Christmas? Let's explore it later after the news. This episode of Teachers Talk Radio has been made possible with support from Witherslack Group, the UK's leading provider of SEN education and care. They're here to support you too through an ever-growing offer of free resources, including webinars, podcasts, articles and events aimed at supporting teaching professionals like you. Visit their website at www.witherslackgroup.co.uk to find out more. If you're listening to this, then we know we share one thing in common. A passion for the type of outstanding education that every child deserves. That's what makes us the leading provider of specialist education and care. We need people like you to help us achieve even more. With us, you'll be given all the resources and support you need, offered a clear path to career progression, and be rewarded with some of the best salaries and benefits the industry has to offer. We are Witherslack Group. If you'd like to find out more, we'd love to hear from you. Visit www.witherslackgroup.co.uk forward slash careers and be part of our future. This is Teachers Talk Radio and this is Teachers Talk Radio News. Christian Institute website reports that MPs have backed a push to ensure that state schools in England uphold the legal requirement to teach religious education, which in most cases reflects the centrality of Christianity. MP Martin Vickers led a Westminster debate on the issue and drew attention to the National Association of Teachers of RE on the Department for Education 2021 School Workforce Census. The census revealed that one in five schools did not teach RE at all in year 11, despite being required to do so by law. An average of 10% of schools gave no time to RE in the years 7, 8 or 9. MP Nick Fletcher said that without an understanding of Christianity, it is not possible to understand the foundations of our institutions and laws or British culture. He went on to outline that other religions should be properly recognised in the pre preparation of RE syllabus. 
but the RE needs to recognise the particular place of Christianity in Great Britain. Mr Fletcher cited other demands placed on schools and failures by Ofsted to hold schools to account as the reason for letting RE slip. In response, Nick Gibb, a minister in the DfE, said all mainstream state-funded schools are required to teach RE. Schools that are not are acting unlawfully or are in breach their funding agreement. He also added that collective worship was an important part of school life. Mr Gibb further reiterated the government's commitment to mandatory collective worship and RE, but also a parent's right to withdraw their children from the subject. Earlier this year, a judge ruled that exclusively Christian RE lessons in Northern Irish primary schools is unlawful after a legal challenge was launched. The decision was, is being appealed as it dismissed the parents' right to withdraw their child from these lessons. In Lincoln, the Investigate Learning team at Lincoln Castle have been recognised for the outstanding learning programme they offer schools, colleges and universities. The Sandford Award recognises museums, galleries and historic buildings that offer the very best programmes aligned with the national curriculum. This year, the castle has welcomed around 8,000 pupils and students, teaching them about the medieval monument's history. The Sandford Awards lead assessor described the insight the programme offers as unique and compelling. The programme covers a series of locally and nationally significant history, ranging from the medieval world and Magna Carta to the treatment of prisoners in Victorian England, bringing it vividly to life in a way that resonates with learners. In a recent news report on Teachers Talk Radio, we covered the global world scale competition, which is taking place in various countries across the globe. This past week, the UK was hosting for the first time in over 10 years. Competitors have travelled from around the world to compete in aircraft maintenance and manufacturing in Cardiff and Wrexham. Finalists had the opportunity to visit various places of interest in the local areas, including countryside, museums and an old coal mine. These young competitors have been training for the last three years to win medals and showing off their skills. The UK entrants feature homegrown Welsh talent with George Denman from Swansea telling FE Week how he hopes competing in world skills will be a huge boost to his career because it teaches key skills like coping under pressure, working as a team and time management. Finally, new research reveals the impact of accent on social mobility. The latest report from Accent Bias in Britain project, led by Queen Mary University London's Professor Deviana Sharma, reveals that more than a quarter of senior professionals from working class backgrounds have been singled out in the workplace for their accent. The project examines the impact that someone's accent has on their journey through education and into the workplace. Professor Sharma says the research shows that accent-based discrimination actively disadvantages certain groups at key points. This creates a negative cycle reinforcing anxiety and marginalisation. The report recommends that action should be taken to diversify the workplace to ensure a range of accents is prevalent in organisations. Further details of the report can be found on the Queen Mary University of London website. This has been your Teachers Talk Radio News with Joe Fox. This episode of Teachers Talk Radio has been made possible with support from Witherslack Group the UK's leading provider of SEN education and care.
They're here to support you too through an ever-growing offer of free resources, including webinars, podcasts, articles, and events aimed at supporting teaching professionals like you. Visit their website at www.wetherslackgroup.co.uk to find out more. If you're listening to this, then we know we share one thing in common, a passion for the type of outstanding education that every child deserves. That's what makes us the leading provider of specialist education and care. We need people like you to help us achieve even more. With us, you'll be given all the resources and support you need, offered a clear path to career progression, and be rewarded with some of the best salaries and benefits the industry has to offer. We are with a Slack Group. If you'd like to find out more, we'd love to hear from you. Visit www.withaslackgroup.co.uk forward slash careers and be part of our future. Thank you, dear listeners, for listening to the news. Now, we have explored the origins of the celebration of the midwinter solstice that later on became Christmas. What can we say about Christmas around the world? Well, currently, most Europeans, more or less, celebrate Christmas as a family event an occasion to give each other gifts and to eat good food and good company. But the ideal of Christmas has also been spreading outside Europe. You can all imagine how uh, interesting it is to imagine that Japanese family have taken the habit of going to eat a McDonald at McDonald's for Christmas as a nod to American culture. So we are very far from the roast uh, chicken or the banquet um, preferred by the Romans. But it's it's a funny nod that Japanese families think McDonald's is the way to celebrate Christmas. In the West Indies, we have um, black uh, African descendants who bake a Caribbean black cake soaked in rum and they prepare it as early as in November as a nod to the Christmas pudding of England as well. So all traditions, all cultures can get their own little version of Christmas, which makes it very rich. One of my favorite questions is to ask people, how do you celebrate Christmas? Do you celebrate it on the 24th in the eve as Scandinavians and French do? Or do you celebrate it on Christmas day on the 25th with your fancy matching pajamas. So this is about the Christmas as we know, but how can we decolonize it? How can we make it inclusive? How can we make it less about Christianity and more about being human in the face of the darkest night of winter? So it is a very difficult question to answer because Christmas is obviously a concretion of habits and traditions pertaining to multiple faiths from the Roman Saturnalia to the medieval banquet celebrating the wealth of the Lord um, and by the Lord I mean the one who has a castle and owns a chunk of land um, with the Jewish celebration uh, with religious wreaths that decorates the house, with the mistletoe coming from the Druids. These are so many different cultures and versions of spirituality. And they don't stem, they don't stem from just one era 
or one location. They come from ancient Egypt to the dark forest of Scandinavia or Latvia. So I would argue that the most important aspect of Christmas is that it's a celebration of the hardship of our Neolithic ancestors. It's a celebration of the fight against dark, the cold and starvation. It's a celebration of technology. And for a prehistoric person, technology is controlling fire. So I guess the best place to celebrate Christmas would be the, st the stones at Stonehenge with a very pagan fire pit, a roasted uh, animal that you hunted, and a bit of singing. Christmas is indeed a Neolithic event. But now, if you want to have fun and teach your students about Stonehenge Christmas, you would have to dig into these ancient roots. You would have to teach them about hunting, um, burning pyres to, get, to rid oneself of bad luck or chase the spirits. You would have to teach them about singing whilst uh, dancing under the mistletoe and maybe making a holy, holy as in H-O-L-L-Y, holy wreath or wreaths. Visiting an early burial mound in Ireland or Denmark might also fit the bill. But what matters is that you can bring something that is not completely dedicated to Christianity into your classroom. You might want to create a wreath. And there's a few uh, examples online. I found one which I entitled the pre-Celtic wreath. So you could do that in DT, for instance. Remember, pre-Celts did not have access to many everyday items. They would have to make everything out of scratch. So if you really want to show your students what a pagan celebration of midwinter would be like, you can't use shop-bought glue and you couldn't use cotton thread. You would have to maybe buy some hemp rope and make your own glue by using a mix of water and flour. You could take your students on a local walk in the park, make them gather twigs, make them gather acorns, conkers, chestnuts, and leaves, and holly. So that could be a good option of taking the students out of the classroom and going on a walk. I would advise um, to take a bag and a pair of secateurs, as well as gardening gloves, because we're not as strong and um, as our pre-Celtic ancestors, and holly can be prickly. So once you're back home with the hemp rope and pine cones and acorns and holly and mistletoe, you would have to create a base in a circular shape. So you might want to use straw that you wrap around uh, with uh, the rope, or you might want to use bendy twigs. So the best twigs for that are actually... Um, willow tw willow twigs and hazel hazel twigs so if you want to do this you can um i mean ideally don't buy the ready-made wreath uh, shape make it yourself and also start with the base you can bend the hazel or willow twigs into a circle and tie them up or use straw as i said in a sausage kind of way and then close that sausage in a circle once it's tightly roped, you can use your mix of flour and water as glue, and you make you can ask the student to use a pen, pen, uh, 
paintbrush and they dip it in the homemade glue and they glue each item onto the straw or the twigs. The thicker the paste for the glue, um, the stronger the glue will be. And it's all about drying, so make sure the students don't move their wreath once they've glued all the items on it. If you want to, you can also use a thread and a needle, but I understand it's not always ideal, particularly if you teach primary. So you arrange all these items on the wreath, and you make sure you cover most of the places where the, the rope is apparent, uh, so that you only see the straw or the bendy twigs and not what the structure that's uh, pinning it together. Once it's really fully dry, you can hang it by the rope onto the front door or in the classroom. And if you want to see examples of how to make your pre-Celtic wreath, you can go on https dot uh, slash slash forest school association dot org and it's entitled make a traditional evergreen wreath so i repeat forest school association make a traditional evergreen wreath so i think that's a brilliant idea to uh, develop in the classroom because you you will have to teach your students about the pagan origin of the Christmas celebrations, you will have to teach them how to make things out of scratch, an everyday item, and you will have to take them outside. It's good to be out in the open air as much as possible, and we underuse our local parks in communities when we are teachers, so please take them out on a walk, secateur, welly boots, and let's do a Neolithic wreath to decorate and bring a little bit of nature into the Christmas celebrations. Now I mentioned the um, Caribbean black cake recipe. This cake is quite symbolic for me because we need to remember that if you want to decolonize Christmas you need to acknowledge, acknowledge the um, terrible acts that were committed during colonizing, colonization and also slavery. And we know that if there's African uh, black African people in the West Indies, it's because the indigenous communities of uh, Native Americans were killed when Europeans came, and then um, black Africans were stolen from their homeland and taken by boat to the Caribbeans. So that Caribbean black cake recipe is really symbolic. It's giving, uh, promoting the ingenuity of former black African slaves how they took a typical Christmas pudding recipe and made it their own by adding the ingredients they had at hand. So it's ingenious, it's clever, it's um, a celebration of decolonizing in cooking. So there is a 12 steps uh, Caribbean black cake recipe. Remember, it's better to bake it at the end of November, so you can start gathering your ingredients, bake it on the last weekend of November, and start making it for the Christmas celebration. So as uh, ingredients are concerned, you will need dried fruits, raisin, currants, prunes, cherries, and dates. You will need a bottle of strong rum, sweet wine if you find it, then unsalted butter, granulated sugar, five large eggs, flour, baking powder, molasses, mixed spice, ground nutmeg, 
grated lime for the exotic and West Indie flavor, almond extract and vanilla extract. I'm not gonna go through all the steps of the recipe because I wouldn't have the time, we only have 20 minutes left, but I would advise you to check the Caribbean black cake recipe online, gather all the ingredients and get it ready. You can make it with your students in DT or you can make it at home. If you make it with students, remember, you cannot use alcohol. <laughs> if you make it at home, you can use alcohol and feed the cake all throughout the Christmas time. So you can start feeding the cake as soon as it's made and then once a week, every six or seven days in December, you add a little bit more rum. So that was to have a decolonite cake for Christmas. Now, if you want to decorate your house without buying into the plastic and glitter um, paraphernalia, you can make your own Christmas ornaments. And I would always advise parents to do this because you will have so many memories of making it with your children. And then every year when you get the Christmas box out, you will remember making it and it will make your heart glow. So please try and make it at home. To make salt ornaments, either for school or at home, you only need flour, table salt, water, and then you need a few bits and bobs such as hemp or cotton rope. You will need cookie cutters, or if you don't, just a glass, and one chopstick. So if you want to prepare the salt dough, you mix the flour and the salt together and then you add water until you reach the right consistency. Your bowl of dough should not be too sticky, it shouldn't be too wet, you, sh you should be able to knead it, and it shouldn't be so dry that it crumbles. So if it's too wet, add more flour, and if it's too dry, add more water and do it, feel it with your hands when you knead it. So once you've made your bowl of dough, you can roll it with a rolling pin rolling uh, pin, and then use the cookie cutters or the glass to make shapes. The, the sweetest shapes are star ones. And um, if you have sugarcane shapes, it's really good as well for the Christmas decorations. You just make sure once all your students have made their cookie shapes, you need to punch a hole in each cookie with a chopstick you will be able to thread it in the hope in the rope once they're cooked. So make sure you do not forget to punch a hole in any shapes you've made. You cook it for not more than 10 minutes and then you let it cool and then the students can paint it with acrylic paint. And then you put a thread through the hole of each, you make a little knot around each um, shape and you create a garland and place it on the Christmas tree or in your classroom. You can also use what the pioneers, the ones who uh, went and conquered America, you can use an early pioneer garland. For that, it's very simple. You just pop some corn and then with a needle and a thread, you can, you can ask your students to do it. You can make them pierce the popped corn and then make a garland out of it. You can spray or 
use glitter if you really want to but make sure you use glitter that doesn't uh, pollute because this is quite a pollutant so use special glitter if you want to use glitter or acrylic paint is always fine i prefer to keep my uh, popcorn garland uh, free of anything and um, just leave it as is now another activity you can do if you want to work on decolonizing Christmas with your students is to make them write the word winter because that's not a religious connoted word. You can make them write the word winter in as many languages as possible. So tell them it's a competition. Every student needs to find a language and write winter in that language. And they can do a poster about it and bring the poster back as homework. I found a fun rune alphabet, because remember, the Norse tribes were the ones who started burning the Yule log in the longest day, in the longest night of the year. And it's a nod to Scandinavian and Viking culture. So I found a rune alphabet with, uh, it's called the um, Pyrrhic rune alphabet and you can write winter in runes which is always a fun thing to do particularly if you start if you teach literacy or languages your student might struggle with playing with different symbols and codes it's always good to make them aware that alphabets are different in different languages because they're not always aware of this and also for your students who are not christians and who are reluctant to use Christmas tropes, Christmas cliches, such as the Christmas tree or the Christmas star or anything nativity related. If you give them the word winter, they won't see it as a religious connotation and they might work on that homework a little bit more than if it's um, connoted with Christianity. Now, I want to go on to something that's a little bit darker. And it's the dark side of Christmas. I give you some ideas of what to do with your students. If you want to be inclusive and not having a Christmas that's religiously connoted. I mentioned the salt dough cookie decoration. I mentioned the um, black Caribbean cake. And I mentioned the Neolithic, Neolithic wreath. Now I'm going to talk about the dark side of Christmas. What is the dark side of Christmas? So we have obviously since 1932 with the Coca-Cola colored Santa, we have made Christmas into celebration of consumerism and we've made it as a Hollywood glamorized Christmas. Yet there's so many Christmas movies, we know it's been Americanized, literally. So if you look at the dark side of Christmas, you have to go back to the Middle Ages with the um, Saint Nicholas. So Saint Nicholas is the patron saint who uh, brings gifts to children in Germanic countries. We have Saint Nicholas celebration on the 6th of December in many European countries. But Saint Nicholas was not alone. Since the 12th century, there was another father figure who came and visited cities in the medieval times. But this father figure was the dark side of fatherhood. He was the punishing father figure. 
So you had Saint, Saint Nicholas, who was the positive, loving, uh, gift-giving person, father figure. And you had the... Um, the dark one. And the dark one in France is called le père fouettard. Fouetter means to whip. So you have the idea of physical punishment, corporal punishment associated. So this is why we have the idea that it's an old idea of giving a gift of a, a lump of charcoal to naughty children. It stems from this 12th century character. Le père fouettard is represented in most, um, French regions as a man wearing a dark brown robe with a hood who's got a long beard, uh, quite scary features, he's frowning a lot and his, his skin is covered in soot because he doesn't wash. So le père fouettard has a whip at times and he walks side by side with Saint Nicholas and he threatens children who haven't been following what adults have been telling them to do. In uh, the oldest traditions, there is even a gruesome story and a gruesome song which explain the arrival of this dark father figure. Le Père Fouettard is akin to a cannibal in a 12th century story. Le Père Fouettard was an innkeeper or butcher, depending on the story, and he is someone who um, met three children kidnapped them and used them as meat to cook in his inn or in his butcher shop. And uh, so it's a story of murder, uh, child murder, kidnapping and cannibalism. And it is said that St. Nicholas was walking past the innkeeper or the butcher shop and he heard the cries of the children's ghosts and he went to the innkeeper and he said oh uh, innkeeper can you can you welcome me and the innkeeper does and uh, saint nicholas says i would like to eat and the innkeeper is going to give him some sausages and saint nicholas says no i want that meat that is in your cellar and obviously the innkeeper is taken by fright because he thinks he's found out and that Nicholas knows that he has been murdering three children. So St. Nicholas goes into the cellar and he forgives the innkeeper or butcher and he brings back the three children to life because he's got magic power. So since that time, that 12th century story, we have these two men who walk side by side. One threatens the children and one brings gifts to them. That's quite gruesome, isn't it? Now, obviously, you can tell why um, Coca-Cola didn't want to use this dark, um, punishing man in its campaign, in its promotional campaign. And this man has slowly disappeared from the story of Christmas. But in some countries, he's still there. And uh, he's um, represented as, in Germany, almost like um, Lord of the Rings kind of orc with devilish features and hooves as feet and horns on his head. But there are other representations of that dark father figure who are very, very disturbing if you are an anti-racism campaigner, which I am. And this one is the one in some areas of Belgium and the Netherlands. So if you type the Netherlands 
and Belgium and St. Nicholas, you might find out some horrendous festivals, celebration that are still celebrated in the Netherlands and Belgium, where you have people, you have people dressed as St. Nicholas, but you have people in blackface. And why is that? It's uh, because obviously the Netherlands and Belgium were colonial powers um, who had slaves and who participated in the slavery and they used um, black people as uh, servants and they also used them to scare children at the time of Christmas. And it is still happening now and I think we need to raise awareness and we need to stop this celebration. We should not see anyone dressed with black face on in the Netherlands and Belgium associated with Christmas. Um, the Catholic Church has been criticized for allowing it. And as yet, I think in 2010, they said it was not um, offensive. We strongly believe it is. And I'm hoping that in the next 10 years, this will become obviously something that is unacceptable and that is stopped. We do not mind the Père Fouettard dressed in brown robes with a craggy beard, some suit on his face and scaring children. What we do mind is using representation of black servants of black slaves as um, that negative portrayal even though it's um, next to Santa Claus. So this is definitely the dark side of Christmas. And I think it would be great to use in a PSHCE, uh, personal social health um, and civic education lesson, where you show different depiction of this dark character, this dark Santa character, and you compare them and you make the student talk about it, organize a debate, show how it's represented in Germany with the devilish horns and hooves in France with he looks like a monk with a beard and in the Netherlands with the people who are dressed with blackface and tell your student is it offensive why is it offensive what should we do about it and encourage a discussion about it I think it's really important to do this if we want to decolonize Christmas. I mentioned that dark episode because I think it's good also to remember and to teach history. And Le Père Fouettard is definitely uh, a part of history. Not many people use the Père Fouettard in celebrations in France anymore, but it is still there and it is a medieval creation. Now, the idea of cannibalism and um, I think it, it stems from, again, this lack of food in the spring months, this fear of dying of malnutrition, this fear of dying of hunger. Remember, it's uh, only recent, I think it's been only a hundred years that we haven't resorted to cannibalism in, um, in many places in the world. In Russia, I think it stopped in the 1920s, in the last episode of famine. But this is a part of our ancient history. This is something that used to happen in Europe. We used to have um, bouts of famine and hunger, and it's deeply engraved in and embedded in our psyche. And we shouldn't shy away from it, but we should teach it as part of history.
So this song that I mentioned that celebrates the Saint Nicholas giving life back to the three children is entitled La Légende de Saint Nicolas, The Legend of Saint Nicholas. And um, the, there's a late motive in the song with a chorus that comes back several times. And I'm going to sing it to you so that you have the air and the melody. It goes like this. Ils étaient trois petits enfants qui s'en allaient glaner au champ. And then there's the whole story about how they were foraging for food when they got caught by this innkeeper slash butcher. So... The dark side of Christmas, for sure, but I thought it was really important to mention it. Santa is benevolent, he's giving, he's reassuring, he's an older man who, who's jovial and, and hearty, but he was not the only one. He, was, he had a sidekick, the dark man with a whip, and um, it definitely hints at our dark history with famine, mal malnutrition, and cannibalism. So, this is my thoughts on decolonizing Christmas. I hope you enjoyed it. I hope it brought a lot of thoughts to your mind. I hope you have some ideas to share with your students. You can definitely start ordering the ingredients if you want to make the black cake, the black pudding, uh, the Caribbean black cake, uh, just omit the rum if you um, use it with children, if you make it with children. You can think about the Neolithic wreath made out of holly, mistletoe, conkers, acorns, leaves, and hollow, uh, willow and hazel twigs. You can talk about the origins of Christmas with the Vikings cutting logs and burning it as a celebration of the longest night. You can talk about the Roman Saturnalia with a banquet. You can mention the early Christians who thought to associate the birth of Jesus with the birth of spring and nature, the return of nature. You can talk about the Druids and the Celtic belief that the longest night was the fight between the Oak King and the Holy King and then the summer solstice would be another fight between these two kings. There's so much spirituality around Christmas. It's not just about Protestantism and the Christmas tree. It is about the invention of technology, the, the control of fire, the ability to conquer fire, the ability to feed ourselves, to harvest food, to last for these difficult months from January to March and April. It is human technology. It is about the fight against a harsh nature, harsh winter. It is definitely way older than Christianity, way older than most monotheist religion. Christmas is a family affair. Christmas is about uniting against hardship, against the night. And I wish we could really impart this knowledge onto the younger generation without shying away from colonization, from slavery, from abuse, without shying away from the black faces in, in the Netherlands that are still happening and I'm hoping they're going to stop it. It's not shying away from the fact that 
every religion tried to impose its celebration onto others. Remember, the Romans came and imposed Saturnalia onto the Celtic celebration, and then later on, Christianity imposed the idea of nativity of Jesus onto the um, Druidic and Roman celebrations. And now we have American imperialism, American consumerism imposing itself on the previous celebrations. So I would say, let's try and go back to the roots. Let's go back to Newgrange, Ireland, and these people who made a passageway to the beyond, a tomb that was only lit once a year by the sun rays on the winter solstice. Christmas is about confronting our fears. It's about confronting darkness and rallying together as a family against the difficulty of human life. And to me, this is a few ideas on the topic of decolonizing the curriculum. I hope you enjoyed it. Please share this podcast to any other educators you know might want to talk about decolonizing Christmas in their schools. Share it wide. It's an interesting subject. I personally love Christmas. I love any celebrations. Um, I do it in a non-religious way. I respect the spirituality of it and I encourage anyone to celebrate it in their own way. Um, Tell me about your Christmas. Tell me about how you celebrate it. And I hope you prepare for the Christmas festivities, whether you are um, religious or not, and that you're going to enjoy the run-up to Christmas, because this is what makes it magical. Thank you so much, dear listeners. I'm going to let you listen to the news one more time before we um, stop the show. Thank you. This episode of Teachers Talk Radio has been made possible with support from Witherslack Group, the UK's leading provider of SEN education and care. They're here to support you too through an ever-growing offer of free resources, including webinars, podcasts, articles and events aimed at supporting teaching professionals like you. Visit their website at www.witherslackgroup.co.uk to find out more. If you're listening to this, then we know we share one thing in common. A passion for the type of outstanding education that every child deserves. That's what makes us the leading provider of specialist education and care. We need people like you to help us achieve even more. With us, you'll be given all the resources and support you need, offered a clear path to career progression, and be rewarded with some of the best salaries and benefits the industry has to offer. We are with a Slack Group. If you'd like to find out more, we'd love to hear from you. Visit www.withaslackgroup.co.uk forward slash careers and be part of our future. This is Teachers Talk Radio and this is Teachers Talk Radio News. Christian Institute website reports that MPs have backed a push to ensure that state schools in England uphold the legal requirement to teach religious education, which in most cases reflects the centrality of Christianity. 
MP Martin Vickers led a Westminster debate on the issue and drew attention to the National Association of Teachers of RE on the Department for Education 2021 School Workforce Census. The census revealed that one in five schools did not teach RE at all in year 11, despite being required to do so by law. An average of 10% of schools gave no time to RE in the years 7, 8 or 9. MP Nick Fletcher said that without an understanding of Christianity, it is not possible to understand the foundations of our institutions and laws or British culture. He went on to outline that other religions should be properly recognised in the preparation of RE syllabus, but that RE needs to recognise the particular place of Christianity in Great Britain. Mr Fletcher cited other demands placed on schools and failures by Ofsted to hold schools to account as the reason for letting RE slip. In response, Nick Gibb, a minister in the DfE, said all mainstream state-funded schools are required to teach RE. Schools that are not are acting unlawfully or are in breach of their funding agreement. He also added that collective worship was an important part of school life. Mr Gibb further reiterated the government's commitment to mandatory collective worship and RE, but also a parent's right to withdraw their children from the subject. Earlier this year, a judge ruled that exclusively Christian RE lessons in Northern Irish primary schools is unlawful after a legal challenge was launched. The decision was, is being appealed as it dismissed the parents' right to withdraw their child from these lessons. In Lincoln, the Investigate Learning team at Lincoln Castle have been recognised for the outstanding learning programme they offer schools, colleges and universities. The Sandford Award recognises museums, galleries and historic buildings that offer the very best programmes aligned with the national curriculum. This year, the castle has welcomed around 8,000 pupils and students, teaching them about the medieval monument's history. The Sanford Awards lead assessor described the insight the programme offers as unique and compelling. The programme covers a series of locally and nationally significant history, ranging from the medieval world and Magna Carta to the treatment of prisoners in Victorian England, bringing it vividly to life in a way that resonates with learners. In a recent news report on Teachers Talk Radio, we covered the Global World Skills Competition which is taking place in various countries across the globe. This past week, the UK was hosting for the first time in over 10 years. Competitors have travelled from around the world to compete in aircraft maintenance and manufacturing in Cardiff and Wrexham. Finalists had the opportunity to visit various places of interest in the local areas, including countryside, museums and an old coal mine. These young competitors have been training for the last three years to win medals and showing off their skills. The UK entrants feature homegrown Welsh talent with George Denman from Swansea telling FE Week how he hopes competing in world skills will be a huge boost to his career because it teaches key skills like coping under pressure, working as a team and time management. Finally, new research reveals the impact of accent on social mobility. The latest report from Accent Bias in Britain project led by Queen Mary University London's Professor Debiana Sharma reveals that more than a quarter of senior professionals from working class backgrounds have been singled out in the workplace for their accent. The project examines the impact that someone's accent has on their journey through education and into the workplace. Professor Sharma says the research shows that accent-based discrimination actively disadvantages certain groups at key points. This creates a negative cycle reinforcing anxiety and marginalisation. 
The report recommends that action should be taken to diversify the workplace to ensure a range of accents is prevalent in organisations. Further details of the report can be found on the Queen Mary University of London website. This has been your Teachers Talk Radio News with Joe Fox. You've been listening to Teachers Talk Radio. Tune in live and listen back at ttradio.org. We look forward to hearing from you next time on Teachers Talk Radio.